The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 4, 34-37. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time... My sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because of all his works are true, and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, great job. You guys nailed your line. I, I love C.S. Lewis. He wrote the uh, well-known, we call it a fantasy kid series, but it's really for all of us, Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you read those, familiar with those. Maybe his most famous book is actually a book called Mere Christianity. This came out of a series of talks he did on the radio on BBC during World War II. And it became this really defense of Christianity and Christian belief. And in that book, he has uh, one chapter that I think is just really insightful about the dangers of a particular sin. Here's how he, what he says at the beginning. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I've very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others." The vice I am talking of is pride. Now, pride, it's ugly. It's off-putting in others. And it's really, really hard to recognize in ourselves. But it's dangerous. I mean, the Bible warns us really throughout how dangerous pride is. Think about what we're told in Proverbs. It says, the Lord hates six things. Seven are an abomination to him. And the very first thing that is listed are arrogant eyes or eyes that look out with pride upon other people. James chapter 4, we read it earlier, Eddie read it, he said, God resists the proud. And do you recognize how dangerous pride is? Do you think about pride, about your pride and your struggle with pride in these terms that God hates it, that God opposes it? You know, we all have it. And it's fascinating that the more we have of it, the less we recognize it. Right? The more pride we have, the less we see our pride. 
Now, I think C.S. Lewis is being nice to us when he says that Christians talk about their struggle with pride. It's, it's not something we like to talk about, is it? Uh, we like to talk about other people's pride. We like to say, oh, that person, they think they're so special. They're so stuck up. Oh, they treat others poorly. But we don't see it in ourselves. We're blind to it. It's so much a part of who we are that we have functionally forgotten about it. Our pride is, is like a, a working grenade that we take everywhere with ourselves, right? The pin's a little loose, and it may explode at any moment, but each day we, we put it in our pocket, we carry it through the day, we, we take it out of our pocket and set it on the nightstand at night, and, and other people see it, and they, they shrink back from it, but we're so used to it that, that we hardly recognize it. How dangerous is your pride to your spiritual health? Is that even a question you consider? Are, are you aware of how you carry it with you? Can, can you see it? Is there anything that can be done with it? Is there any hope to grow in humility? We've reached a part in Daniel, two chapters in a row that deal with the danger of pride. In fact, there's a phrase at the very end of the chapter that connects these two accounts together. And it's this, that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, now there's a lot that happens here in chapter 4. It's about more than one man's battle with pride, but it's impossible to miss this warning about pride unless we think it's unique to King Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have to be a king to oppose God's authority. You don't have to command armies to rebel against his rule. So this final account from Nebuchadnezzar's life teaches us some valuable truths about how God governs his world. It warns us about the danger of pride, but then it shows us that God shows and grants mercy to those who are humble before him. So here's what we're going to do. I want to walk through the the text first, then we'll look at some lessons that we should learn from it. Now this chapter opens with really a, a shocking proclamation made by Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're new this morning, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, which is the, really the world power at that point. He's the one who, who, who led it to prominence. Now, chapter 3, some interesting events transpire where Nebuchadnezzar commands people to worship him and some young Hebrew men, they defy him and God rescues them. And chapter 3 ends with, with Nebuchadnezzar making this statement that's supposed to be sent out to everyone under his rule. And the statement is this, if you say anything bad about the, these guys, God, these Hebrew, the Hebrew God, then, then my people will come and they will tear your limbs off and they will turn your house into a garbage dump. Now, chapter 4, the the difference between what King Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of chapter 3 and and this chapter 4 is, it's it's shocking. Because chapter 4 begins with him sending a message of peace to all nations about the wonderful things, not that God did for them, but that God has done for him. So look at how chapter 1 opens. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the earth. Now listen to how much different his tone is. May your prosperity increase. That's a lot different than, we'll tear you limb from limb. Verse 2, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are His miracles, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And what, what caused such a drastic change in Nebuchadnezzar? How do you move from threats to a testimony? Well, that's what he recounts in the following verses. 
It all begins in verse 4, a peaceful day in the palace. Nebuchadnezzar either lays down for a nap or he goes to bed early and he wakes up terrified. Verse 5 says this, I had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. Now we know this, this isn't Nebuchadnezzar's first scary dream because back in chapter 2, something very similar happens to him. Now in that case, he was so fearful that he got paranoid and his paranoia led him to threaten the death of those around him unless they could help him. And there's a very similar pattern here. He he doesn't threaten death, but he does the same thing. In verse 6, it says he calls all the wise men to him, all of his counselors, and he says, listen, I I need your help. And then verse 7 tells us they can't help him. They, They try, they think about it, they do all they can. They're not able to help them. You know, it seems to me that God is determined to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And when God wants someone's attention, he gets it. Now, I want you to pay attention to, there's, there's a subtle lesson, I think, in these two accounts, these two dreams. What does the king do when he has these dreams and when he needs help? Well, he calls, it says, the wise men, the counselors, he calls the magicians, all of those who, who gather around him, he calls them for help. Well, well, who are these men? Well, these men are, they're the, they're the religious leaders, really, of Babylon. And Babylon would have worshipped lots of gods. In fact, that's why it wasn't a big deal for Nebuchadnezzar earlier to say, like, yeah, we'll, we'll take your God too, just add him to the list. So these are all of the religious leaders. These are all of the priests. These are these type of individuals that he calls for, for his help when he needs it. And what can they offer him? Nothing. Like, all, all of their religious work, all of their knowledge, all of their, they can't give him anything. And this is what it's showing us, right? That all of these other gods are empty. All of these other religions are false. There's one God who sits upon the throne of the universe. And there's only one way for us to actually understand his world and his will. And it's the way that he has determined. He's designed the way. And all other ways are empty and helpless. Well, after their failure... The king remembers that in the previous time he had a dream, Daniel was able to help him, so he calls Daniel to him. Now we're told they're reminded that Daniel had been given a new name when he arrived in Babylon, and it was named after the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, these gods who can't help. And yet Nebuchadnezzar recognizes something in Daniel. He says a couple different times, the spirit of the gods, the holy gods, the other gods... In other words, the the non-Babylonian gods, his spirit resides in Daniel. In other words, Daniel has some sort of access to the God, unique God, who can actually help. You know, was it Daniel's faithfulness that caused Nebuchadnezzar to call him for help in a time of personal crisis? Often, the faithfulness of Christians to speak the truth in love and in wisdom opens doors to help others when their worlds begin to crumble. Beginning in verse 10, we see Nebuchadnezzar recounts the dream to Daniel. Here's the dream. Look at verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar says, says this, In the visions of my mind, I was lying in bed, and I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall, and the tree grew large and strong, and its top reached the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it, the birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. So this starts as a very 
pleasant dream, right? But we start to see the turn it takes in verse 13 because we're told an angelic messenger called a watcher, he, he comes down from heaven with a message, and here's the message, look at verse 14. Cut down the tree, chop off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it, the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Now it gets even worse because halfway through verse 15 we see this, that the tree actually becomes a man. It's, so we understand this is symbolic of some individual. Look at verse 15. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. And all of this, verse 17, so that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. So verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar, he finishes recounting this dream and he asks Daniel for the interpretation. Right? He's saying, Daniel, this doesn't sound good. Can you, can you tell me what it means? And Daniel's response is surprising and I think instructive. We see in verse 19 that he is stunned and alarmed. In fact, the very first thing he says is he wishes those dark and scary parts of the dream would not come upon Nebuchadnezzar, but on Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. You see this? Daniel shows us in flesh and blood what it means to love our enemies. I mean, Jesus commands us as his followers. He gives us these commands like this. Bless those who persecute you. Love those who oppose you. Seek to do good to those who seek to do you harm. And we ask, how how are we supposed to do that? What does that look like? It looks like Daniel. I mean, his, his genuine love for the king is evident, even though it was the king who, who took him from his homeland, who destroyed the temple, who made him a, a slave in a foreign place, and yet he doesn't wish evil on the king. He wants him to know and experience God's blessing. I, I think of the nauseating political ads right now. We were watching a baseball game last night, and I think five commercials in a row were political ads. If you're not familiar with them, this is how you can tell them. It starts with ominous music playing in the background. And then the worst possible picture of a person, the worst possible photo that's ever been taken of them appears on the screen. The one they would never, ever choose for themselves. And then... They're described with, a, with sort of a, a scary voiceover as the worst person in the world, basically the devil in a three-piece suit, and then there's a light cackling, I think, in the background that sounds like the, the, the evil mastermind. I was sitting there last night thinking about this. I was like, I just wish once they'd be honest. Maybe this is how a Christian political ad should sound. Start with this. My opponent loves their spouse and kids. And they're genuinely a nice person. And though we disagree on some important issues, they are trying to help people. And, and let's, if we're really being honest, there'll likely be little difference between what they accomplish and what I accomplish. Yet, the differences, I think, are important. So I'm urging you and encourage you to vote for me because I believe my positions are wiser and they're more beneficial to, the, to our community. But my opponent is not an ogre. This ad sponsored by yada, yada, yada. See, here's what we see here. Is Daniel treats Nebuchadnezzar with respect. As Christians, when are we ever allowed to not treat someone with respect? 
Like, where is it in the Bible that says, hey, you don't need to treat that person like they are made in the image of God? You don't have to be nice or kind to them. Where, 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 where does it say this? And, and I think this is instructive for us. Daniel, a slave to the king, treats him with respect. But notice this, he doesn't fear him. He treats him with respect. He doesn't fear him. And maybe this is where we struggle as Christians, right? We, we fear people and their, their influence, and therefore we don't respect him. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar here, who has what seems all the power and has done all these things to Daniel, Daniel still treats with respect, but he doesn't fear him. Very similar to, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they speak the truth when it would be wiser, it seems to be silent. They're fearless in their counsel to the king. Listen, as believers, we should not be afraid of rich, successful, influential people. We should not be terrified by those in power. We should never say, if they get elected or appointed, this is the end of the world. We, we know the end of the world. And we know who's on the throne when the end of the world comes. No politician, no employer, no family member controls your future. Right? Only, only God has that kind of power. Well, Daniel tells the king that the tree represents him and his mighty kingdom, verses 20 through 22. And then he warns him about what's coming. Verse 25, he says, You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle. You'll be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the trees stumped with the truth, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now Daniel, he gives the interpretation here, but then he follows it with some advice. And his advice is this, Nebuchadnezzar, if you will repent of your pride, if you will turn from your injustice and do right, then God may respond in mercy. Now he's not telling him to, to do good and earn God's favor. He's telling him to repent of his wrongdoing and trust God's mercy. Listen to verse 27. Therefore may my advice seem good to you, my king, Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right. That's repentance. Separate yourself from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Then perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Now it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar listened to this advice for a period of time. We're we're really not told. Here is what we're told. That 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking through the palace. And he's observing the beauty and majesty, the glory of Babylon. And his heart is lifted up in arrogance verses 28 through 30. And at that very moment, God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, and what he says comes to pass. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You'll feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This reminds me of a scene from one of those Narnia novels, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So there's a, a boy in there named Eustace who, who's just sort of a haughty, arrogant, spoiled boy. And throughout the book, he's, he's warned about this is, this is what you need to do and this is what you need to be aware of. And one of the things he's warned about is, is this treasure that they find on one island. And he's, he's 
to, to keep away from it. But yet he, his heart desires it. And so he goes and he, and he hoards it. And in describing this, Lewis talks about how as he sat there guarding his treasure that he turned into a dragon. And I think what Lewis is showing is that his, his outward form started to match his inward condition. And it isn't until he honestly confesses from his sin that he's turned back and in sort of a painful life-giving way, he's turned back into a human. And I think that's what we're seeing here is that Nebuchadnezzar's outward form is matching now, maybe for the very first time, the condition of his heart. But we're told this, that when he does repent, when he looks to God for help, God restores him. Verse 34 But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sandy returned to me. He goes on to talk about how he praised and glorified God who lived forever. You know, reading Nebuchadnezzar's final testimony here, I couldn't help but think of something that he said earlier. So in chapter 3, he brought those three Hebrew men before him, and he said, listen, I'm going to give you a second chance to bow down before me, bow down and worship my glory, the statue that represents him. And they said, no, we don't really don't need a second chance. You can give us as many chances as you want. We're, we're not going to bow. And he says, he asks them a question, and it's a, really a mocking question. He looks at them, and he says in chapter 3, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Well, now Nebuchadnezzar not only knows the answer, but he rejoices in the answer because Nebuchadnezzar has met the God who rescues people. He himself has been rescued from his pride and destruction. When we think about Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and the context life, I think we can learn some important lessons about human pride and divine mercy. So, so the, these final words in the chapter, they, they show us that his life is intended to be an example of how God humbles those who walk in pride. So where did Nebuchadnezzar's pride come from? Here's what we see. The root of pride is success and self-sufficiency. The root of pride is success and self-sufficiency. Think about how this chapter opens. chapter opens in verse 4. It says, Nebuchadnezzar is at ease in my palace, and I am flourishing at home. Right? Everything's great. Life is fantastic. He has created a paradise for himself. He needs no one. We, we see this again pictured in this tree. It says, whose top is above the clouds. It covers the whole earth. Everything about Babylon screams success and therefore self-sufficiency. We again have strong echoes of the Tower of Babel in this dream. We've seen how this happens throughout these opening chapters. In this very same geographical place, a group of people gather to the together and they wanted to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. They didn't want to have to honor and glorify a name other than their own. They wanted nothing. They just wanted what they wanted. They wanted to be sufficient. And so here we are. Babylon is beautiful. Nebuchadnezzar is powerful and he, is, he has authority and he knows it. And what he fails to acknowledge is that everything he has has come to him from God. Do you remember this in chapter 1? So we're told in chapter 1, verse 2, that the reason Nebuchadnezzar defeated Israel was because God gave Israel into his hands. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is here and he's thinking that all of the success he sees is a testimony to his self-sufficiency when it's actually a stewardship from God. So everything that we have materially and everything we are in our temperament and abilities is because God gave it to us. And so we, we really need to beware of this natural propensity to Look at the gifts God has given us and take credit for them. I I read this statement this week and it really just struck me. It's a warning. One writer said, the more gifted you are, the more dangerous you are. The more gifted you are, the more dangerous you are. In other words, the more God has given you the more ability you have to use those things for good or for evil. Like we, like Nebuchadnezzar, we, we take credit for what God has given to us. We, we look at all that we have done and we say, look at what I have done. What I have done. Right? The, the American ethos is very similar to the Babylonian one. You take charge, you be successful, you don't let anyone get ahead of you, and then here's what you do. Enjoy your ease. You've earned it. You've accomplished it. You've done it. And this type of pride even, even infects our spiritual life. Right? We, we compare ourselves to people at work or students in class, and we look at them and their sinful choices, and, their, and we're, we're just... We just, we just inwardly think, man, glad I didn't do that. Glad I'm not like them. And, and we applaud ourselves for, like, for better choices, for better decisions, as, as if we're responsible for these. We, we like to think that we're self-sufficient, that our success, given to us by God, whatever form it takes, our success is because of us. But think about this, great and mighty Nebuchadnezzar. All of this success. Look at Babylon the Great. Twice, four chapters. He can't go to sleep. He can't sleep. Like, for all that he thinks he has accomplished, look how out of control his life is. How it isn't in his control. It isn't under his power. Not only that, he can't get the answers he really wants. We see in Nebuchadnezzar's dream here, uh, it's deliberately reminiscent, actually, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So, So think about this and what took place there. Both accounts center on a tree. Both Adam and Nebuchadnezzar, it says, are given dominion over the birds in the sky and the animals on land. And what happens to both of them? Both want independence from God. Both think they're better off on their own. And so instead of ruling under God and over the animals, they attempt to overthrow God. And we're told they become like animals, like beasts of burden. Nebuchadnezzar here eating grass, Adam having to work the field like a beast. And the result is the same. Both are driven away from the fruitful land into the wilderness because of their pride. 
So the root of pride is success, and this success leads us to think we're self-sufficient. The fruit of pride is injustice and self-deception. Look at verse 29. It says, At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Now, who built Babylon? Well, in the broadest sense, we know it was God. Right? We, we know that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, that he appoints rulers, that he, he raises up nations and he brings them down. But in a narrow sense, slaves built Babylon. Right? They, they made the bricks from mud and straw. I am quite certain Nebuchadnezzar made, never made a brick in his life. They dug furrows in the dirt and planted seed. They, they made trenches and diverted streams. They fed and drove the animals. They did the work. And Nebuchadnezzar received all the benefits and all the credit. And so this is why in verse 27 that when Daniel is counseling the king to repent and humble himself, he says, you need to separate yourself from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Arrogant people mistreat other people. Here's why. Because those people aren't as important. They're not as important. Look at what they've done. Look what I've done. They just don't matter as much. See, Nebuchadnezzar has this habit, one we all have, of looking down at other people and therefore ignoring what's above us. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, that he believes that he is the very top of the pyramid. He's the tree that stretches over all the earth. He's the pinnacle of the food chain, that he's in the clouds and nothing is above him. And so it's why it's so interesting in verse 23 that in his dream, where does the angelic messenger come from? It says he comes down from heaven to Nebuchadnezzar. There's something way higher than Nebuchadnezzar. Does Nebuchadnezzar listen? Well, in the very next scene that we're given, 12 months later, it says he is walking on the roof of his palace, up high. And he is looking down over all that he has done. And it isn't until, we're told in verse 34, that he finally looks up to heaven that he is a changed man. So in his pride, he believes something is false. He says, I, I'm at the very top. I'm in charge. I'm above the law. I'm above everyone else. Brothers and sisters, if you have any measure of success, influence, or authority, it has come to you not because you're the smartest or the hardest working or the most capable. You may be all of those things, but you are where you are because the God of heaven has placed you there. And if you are skilled, and if you do work hard, it is only because he has given you skill and drive and good health and energy. Don't mistreat people you think are below you. Don't look down upon others. In fact, here's what Christians do. We use our influence to bless and serve those who have less power and influence than we have. Wasn't it our Savior who got down on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples? Now, one of the great dangers of pride is that it wears camouflage. Like a chameleon, it changes colors. It protects itself by hiding from our sight. 
As Lewis said, we, we see it in others, but we're blind to it in ourselves. And so that's why, that's why this account is so necessary. This is a warning this morning to us. Like, it's there. It's there. Do you see it? But this is about more than human pride. Like, it doesn't just stop and be like, you're proud. Deal with it. Let's be dismissed. Thanks be to God. Like, this is also a wonderful story about divine mercy. Because God's mercy is displayed in multiple ways. It's displayed in a message to warn Nebuchadnezzar, a prophet, to interpret the message, a punishment that opens his eyes to the truth, and then ultimately a king who rules forever. So a message, a prophet, a punishment, a king. Twice God has given Nebuchadnezzar a message through a dream. What did Nebuchadnezzar do to deserve this message from God? And and we know this, right? Nothing. Absolutely nothing that all of this is 100% the result of God's mercy. Listen, the mercy of God is not a reward for righteousness, but a rope that pulls us out of our wickedness. It doesn't come to us as a payment for good deeds, but in response to evil deeds. In fact, if you're not a Christian, I, I tell you this message today, this passage of Scripture, this service you're a part of and what you witness is God's mercy to you. That he is, through all of this, inviting you to come to him, to repent of your rebellion against him and receive his mercy. So not only does God send a message, but notice he puts Daniel in the perfect spot to interpret the message. I think if you would ask Nebuchadnezzar, hey, why is Daniel here? Nebuchadnezzar would say, because I won. Because I defeated Israel and I brought him here. But we know the truth, don't we? Daniel is there where he is because that's where God wants him so he can minister to Nebuchadnezzar exactly when God wants him to do it. Now notice God's mercy also comes through the punishment he inflicts on Nebuchadnezzar. So I, I, I want you to think about this. I think this is key for us in our lives because we so often struggle with why. Why this? Why this difficulty? Why this suffering? Why this challenge? Why, why, why? Think about this. The very thing that drives Nebuchadnezzar from his comfort and ease in the palace is God's mercy. It is God's mercy that drives him out of his comfort and ease. In other words, God's mercy is not only seen in the sunshine, but in the storm. Or as Lewis writes, we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, Nebuchadnezzar could not ignore the shouts of God in his suffering. Are you suffering right now? What might God be saying to you through your suffering? Notice his suffering becomes an instrument of healing to others. We're not told anything about Nebuchadnezzar after this chapter. He, he just disappears from the scene. So we don't know how this affected the way he governed, the way he treated people. We know this, though. His final words that are recorded are this beautiful proclamation sent out to all the nations. In other words, his humbling becomes a testimony of God's grace to others. I just want to say, brothers and sisters, that God can use your present hardship to encourage and bless others. Now we're told in verse 32 that this humbling lasted for seven periods of time. Some think that means seven years, but 
the author intentionally hides how long it takes. Like he doesn't define the period of time. His focus is on the number seven, not the length. Now, and keep that in mind, store that in the back of your mind for later because it helps us interpret other sections of Daniel. But why does he focus on seven, not on the length of time? Because seven signifies completion. God made the world in seven days and then he rested. It was complete. It was done. And so the point of this phrase is that Nebuchadnezzar's humbling lasts the perfect amount of time. It lasted until it was complete. That not one second less nor one second more of suffering. That that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled for exactly how long it took for God to complete his work. And so if God is humbling you now, if he is speaking to you through the megaphone of pain, he's calling for your attention, remember God has a purpose for it, and that it will last only as long as God has planned for him to complete the work in you. Now the final act of God's mercy, what it does is it pushes us beyond Nebuchadnezzar to the greater point of the book of Daniel. This account points us to the ultimate act of mercy in the coming of King Jesus. We see this in just a number of ways. We see Jesus in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. So who's Nebuchadnezzar? He's a mammoth tree. His kingdom is huge and it's impressive and it's powerful and then it is cut down to a stump. Now Jesus describes his kingdom in almost the exact opposite terms. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in his branches. So the kingdom of Jesus starts small and lowly, but it eventually grows and fills all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, like Adam before him, fails to exercise his dominion under God's rule. Instead, he rebels, and the tree is his destruction, and he's sent into exile. But Jesus humbles himself. Jesus heads to the tree of destruction, into exile for us, and he succeeds And now he is restoring all things. He's bringing all things under the dominion of his father's rule. He's restoring what was lost in the garden. The kingdom of Babylon is portrayed here as a mighty oak that's cut down into a stump. In fact, this is a very same metaphor that's used for Israel. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, because of their pride and arrogance, was cut down and only a stump was left. And then we're told by the prophet Isaiah that from that stump, from that what appeared to be dead tree, there would be a shoot, a branch. And that branch would start to grow. And we're told that that branch is the Messiah, Jesus, whose kingdom grows until it becomes an earth-filling tree. And finally, here in verse 17, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar this, and this is, this is clear and I think powerful to us who know Jesus. He tells that God gives kingdoms to anyone he wants, and look at this phrase, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. The lowliest of people over them. Now we certainly see that pattern in Scripture in some different ways. We read the book of Judges. It's a bunch of lowly people who are given power to, to defeat an enemy for short, short period of time, and then we see their failure. We, we see it in King David, right? All of his brothers line up. Which one's going to be king? And it's David who was so lowly they didn't even call him there. Becomes king, and for a time it grows, but then he too fails. But where do we see this most? Where do we see the lowliest of people set over a kingdom? 
Well, in his letter to Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not hold on to equality with God, but instead he humbled himself. He, he, he was born as a man, and more than that, he died as a criminal. He became the lowliest of people. And then how does that, how does that passage continue? It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So Jesus came, meek and lowly, and now he rules over a kingdom that has no end. I learned this week something you may or may not be familiar with, but one of our members, Zach Engel, he fought a battle, a legal battle against the state of Virginia. So if you've ever driven through Virginia, you might have seen their state motto is, Virginia is for lovers. So Zach decided to trademark the phrase, West Virginia is for others. Check it out at westvirginiasforothers.com. All the merchandise. So he got a letter from the state of Virginia telling him to cease and desist. And there was a, a, a law firm in Raleigh who said, ooh, we would like to take this case. We'd like to fight against the state of Virginia. And Zach was victorious. And Apparently, there was a description of this case on their website after they won, and it describes how Zach Engel, a private citizen, took on the sovereign state of Virginia and triumph. So when Zach told me the story this week, I was just struck by that phrase, sovereign state of Virginia. How sovereign are you really if you lose to Zach? <laughs> how powerful is Nebuchadnezzar really? How powerful are kings and presidents? You know, from the ground, if you stand next to it, a redwood looks mighty. But from space, it's just a speck. What looks powerful and intimidating to us is nothing more than a speck from God's perspective. So the best way for us to nurture humility and to resist pride is to do what Nebuchadnezzar did both at the beginning and end of this passage. Think about God's power. Wonder at God's glory. Rejoice at his salvation. Praise him for his mercy. Thank him for showing you grace. And then put your hope in the never-ending kingdom and its king who became lowly so that we would one day share in his exaltation. Pray with me. Father, help us. We, we struggle with pride. We know it. And we, we know even what you say, that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Father, help us. Humility, we know, is not accomplished by just a determination to be more humble. That doesn't work. If anything, we would take pride then in our humility. Humility comes as we see the, the glory and grace of Jesus Christ his love for us that we do not deserve, his victory over sin, his, our adoption into his family. So Lord, help us this week. Help us to reflect upon the good news of the gospel. Help us to rejoice in what Jesus has done and then nurture in us a humility, a joyful humility that, that, that is evident to those around us. Help us, like Daniel first, Nebuchadnezzar after him, to praise the God of heaven who exalts the lowly. Lord, we're lowly. And we have been exalted 
through Jesus Christ. Been given that which is not ours. Help us, help us to be changed by this reality. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.